Welcome back to Part of the Disruption. I'm your host, Weasel, and every week I'm joined by some real estate room shakers, men such as Leon G. Barnes, R.J. Bates, Chris Jefferson, Eric Brewer, and Steve Trang himself. This week, the boys have the week off, but we wanted to give you guys some content to enjoy. So enjoy this montage of some of the best highlights and moments from the show so far. And definitely drop those chats in and get some votes in for who you thought had the best opinions on all of the subjects and questions. We'll be back next week with another Room Shaking episode. And we'll see you then. Would you rather close a big deal first or a small first deal? Let's start with RJ. Let me give you a chance. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go with big deal. I'm, I'm never going to pass up the opportunity to make a significant amount of money whether it's your first deal or, or, you know, your 21st deal. I mean, the, the opportunity to make that big pop right there should not have any sort of an impact on you uh, negatively uh, unless you just are not sure of why you're running your business and, and what your goals are moving forward. If you have that big pop on your first ever deal, that should just set you up for success because now we're probably answering that, that uh, question a little bit differently than we just answered because you do have resources. A lot of us are assuming, hey, on that first deal, you're probably lucky if you're making five or six grand. You know, if you go out and you make a 50, 60, $100,000 pop, yeah, maybe now you can actually do what Steve said. You know, you can't do it like to CJ's point. You can't go hire an employee if you just made $5,000. But if you make 100,000, yeah, you're probably looking at things differently. I'm gonna advise you to go out and set up some systems and and hire a coach to get your business set up so absolutely the big pop right out the gates okay uh rj for the record too i loved what you just said so i'm gonna vote for you if it's under the tie okay <laughs> uh, let's take it to cj let's go head this up is right not now biased. with the two champions anyway none <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm going look, I'm going to switch it up a little bit. I'm going to take a small first deal. Actually, I think real estate is an interesting business where often people who are brand new with, you know, not a lot of business experience, quite frankly, we're left to our own vices, our own thoughts, our own expectations. And, you know, hitting 50, $100,000 on a first deal, I think it really skews somebody's expectations of the business. That's not a common deal type that you're going to get every single month, every single deal. So, Creating expectations up front with a smaller deal and then building into, you know, these larger pops of deals, uh, I think is kind of the best way to go about that. So I would actually pick a small first deal and then I'd figure out where the money resides and I'd start making the money and hitting those big pops as well. All right. Okay. Not mad at that answer. For sure. Voting for RJ though. The bigger the bag, the better. <laughs> Steve, <laughs> your opinions. So unfortunately I agree with CJ here. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we've seen, uh, what we've seen in the past is someone gets a big deal and they blow it, right? They start spending money, the wrong things that are spending it inappropriately. Uh, they're not a good steward of the capital. And what ends up happening is they buy some guru the product that they haven't vetted or, you know, they're doing the Lambo thing that RJ recommended earlier, right? Um, and you have, what, you know, it's the MC Hammer effect, right? Or the TLC where you get all this money and you blow it all. Right. So I think having a small deal, what you really need is you need a first deal, right? A first deal, if it's small or big, if you get a first deal, it's proof of concept. So a small deal solves that issue. The bigger deal is when you start squandering. And I've seen so many people like make a big first deal and then just blow it all. And their expectations are skewed uh, for their next few months. Okay. And let's close it out with Leon Barnes. So I'm going to go slightly a different way on this question. As I read it, uh, the first time I read this question, I thought of 
Are we talking about a big deal in regards to how many moving parts there are on the deal? Um, or are we talking about big profit? Because if it's something that's simple and easy and it's big profit versus small profit, I'm taking big profits all day. But if you're looking at a deal um, and it's, it's hairy and there's lots of moving parts to it, then I'm taking the smaller profit that fits more in my wheelhouse as a real estate investor. So what they said is all, all true. Although I think RJ is right. I'm taking that bigger profit all day. But when it comes to if it's a big deal in regards to a lot of moving parts, I'm taking the smaller profit on a smaller, easier deal first to learn from out of the gates. Okay. Okay. Floor is open for any points to build upon with each other. Why would you guys take small profits on, on normal deals? I, I'm, I'm blown away by that. No, I'll, I'll give a thought on that, man. Look, I, I've seen so many people do their first deal. Thankfully, I've been able to teach a lot of people how to do their first deal. People that I've seen that have done huge deals as their first deal, 30, 40, 50,000, it's always harder to keep them on track. I mean, you're talking about, it's like taking an 18-year-old that comes into the draft and handing them a $60 million contract. We can't have the expectation they're going to make great decisions. It's just not real. So I think giving somebody an opportunity of a smaller deal gives them the ability to work into a mode that grind that's really needed to get to this level of real estate. Yeah, well, based it's, off it's, it's the expectations. That, go ahead, Steve. I was gonna say it's the expectations, right? Like their their work ethic is gonna be a little bit different, right? Uh, I think uh, if it's if they have to work hard for that first deal, it, they're gonna appreciate it a little bit more. If it was easy as a giant uh, profit deal, then they might think, oh, I can take it easy because like all my deals are gonna be fifty thousand dollar deals, and then it's just not working it the way they need to work it. But based off of this theory that y'all are spitting right now. You're saying that you don't know anybody that's gone out and made $5,000 on their first deal and then made mistakes afterwards. I mean, that that's of course, a of course. right. And so my point is, so, is RJ, if I give you 50 grand, you're going to go buy a lot of ice skates. All right. If I give you five grand, you might get one pair and you might get Cassie a pair. All right. I think 5,000 is just easier for people to manage starting out. I, I, I disagree. I think having the cushion there and the ability to actually survive when you really don't know a whole lot, it, it doesn't mean that suddenly because you made money, you're going to spend it frivolously. I mean, that's just that's you're now you're going into their mindset and their understanding of how to run a business. But I would much rather tell any of my students, I hope you go out and you make 50,000 on your first deal than 5,000, because I don't want to say, of course, Hey, of course we want them to make as much as possible on their first deal, but we're talking about realistic. We're talking about them being realistic and what we would think would be the best option. I would, I personally would rather make less or see somebody to make less. Do we all want to make as much as possible? Sure. But I think they'd be, how many times we go and hit a home run? They'd be praying for more success if there's more struggle in the beginning. That's where I'm going with this. If it's too easy in the beginning, they're not going to get the right habits. They're going to screw up. And then it's going to be harder the rest of the way, at least for the rest of the first year. I think that's unfair. I think I, that's unfair to that to that investor because you guys are you're you're blanking and approaching it and saying that everyone that gets a big deal on their first deal is going to uh, frivolously spend that out of the gates. And I, I don't think that's fair. In fact, I would say having not enough funds could actually be what creates the bad habits. Having funds available to you where you can actually create processes within systems that you can now afford 
would allow you to create positive habits moving forward. I, I don't think that's fair to say. Can we, we agree that? Could we agree, RJ, that most people that get into the business don't have a lot of money when they start wholesaling, don't have a lot of business experience when they start wholesaling, don't have a lot of that discipline, a lot of those principles that you're speaking of? So sure, Absolutely. you make a lot of sense with somebody that has that experience, but I think we could all professionally agree the majority of people getting started inside of wholesaling do not have that level of experience, that level of discernment when it comes to managing money, different things like that. I mean, let's just be brutally honest, right? Like, why does a lender have a draw system? A lender has a draw system because if I hand you 100000 to use for that rehab, it doesn't matter what experience you've got. If you've been dicking around on other rehabs and robbing Peter to pay Paul, it doesn't matter about your experience. It doesn't matter about any of that. I don't know that I can trust you with that money yet. So I this think people just want to build into them. that. This also allows them to go out and hire someone like Steve Train to help them learn how to convert leads. It allows somebody to hire Chris Jefferson. I mean, I don't know why they would actually do that. If they really, <laughs> I'm the only one here saying I want you to make money. <laughs> Great points all around the board. Great points all around. Um, I have to Good say day. I'm still Team RJ on this one, but I don't make the decisions. Uh, really quickly before we close out the voting poll, I wanted to highlight there was a comment here from Bam Bam Seven Hundred Four. He said, "From firsthand experience, the first checks can affect you bad if you've never had money before." Good point. Great point. All right. And the voting is closing out, and it looks like we've got a second round for Steve Trang, the self-proclaimed Sherpa that you need on Mount Everest. <laughs> for me, if uh, someone like Kyrie was available, I would only hire him uh, under as an independent contractor, as a consultant. I would not hire him as an employee, right? And I think the reason why is that if they came in, they would ruin the culture of the company. One guy that has one rule apply for him that doesn't apply for everybody else. I think it's gonna be toxic. It's gonna cause problems because if you make an exception for one person, you're gonna make make an exception for everybody. So we brought him in. You'd be very clear. You're not allowed to talk to anybody else. You do your one thing. You get in. You get out. And you're a 1099. And by the way, there's no base, right? Like you eat what you kill in that role. Okay. Okay. With 10 seconds left. Okay. Leon Barnes, your opinion. Well, as the best baller uh, on this podcast here currently, uh, I think I'm the most qualified to answer this question. So, um, you know, Kyrie is one of those individuals that you love his talent. And we all have at some point in our business, we've all had a Kyrie on our team. So at some point you may hire someone with Kyrie type talent, but long term, as you continue to grow and scale your business, you can't have a bunch of Kyries, have great culture and win. It's just not possible. And I love the guy. I think he's a great talent. I think the same thing can be said about a lot of the employees that get you to a certain point, but aren't going to get you to ultimately where you want to be in your business. So no, I, I would not bring on a Kyrie Irving. Okay. Okay. RJ Bates, your opinions on a Kyrie Irving hire for yourself? Yeah, I'm going to contradict what I said last week with, with Kevin Durant. I said, you know, absolutely, I'm going to bring on the, the top talent. He's won championships with other organizations because I felt like KD just needed leadership, and that was his problem in some of his other organizations. I think the problem with Kyrie is, is how, how can you lead someone who's not present? 
And and for me, the the fact that he's just not there, he, he's not willing to show up and put in the work and, and be that teammate. I, I mean, it's a non-negotiable for me. Uh, absolutely not. I would not want Kyrie Irving on my team, even though he has won a championship with the Cavs. I just, I don't think that his issues can be resolved through culture, through leadership, like Kevin Durant's issues could be. Okay. And last but certainly not least, CJ, let's get your opinion. Man, super simple for me. I don't work with people who lack effort. You know, uh, we all have people around us that are super talented, that have greatness within them, but uh, effort is something that you can't teach. Uh, you know, look, it's just not something that would work for me. If I'm going to go fly on a plane and I got to have a captain on that plane, I need somebody flying that plane that's been through some turbulence, knows what to expect, and can make sure that we can get that plane landed uh, safely. And I just don't see that with Kyrie. Uh, and we don't need to be jaded by talent sometimes. I mean, again, effort can get you a long way and you can build talent and skill on top of effort. So I'm with everybody else. I'm absolutely not hiring Kyrie to be on my team whatsoever. How the heck did we go 180 for all four of us here? I'm the only one here that would hire Kyrie. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Well, you're the one yeah. to hire him, so you're the only one that's dead wrong on this. No, but y'all three of you are like, <laughs> no, I would never hire KD because I would bring in KD, right? Like, he needs more leadership and this and that. And here you're talking about another person that's super talented. Like, oh, there's no way I'd bring him in. I Like I said, I would bring him in strictly, right, as a, a consultant. It wouldn't be, like, an employee. But I am shocked at how quickly the three of you guys took a 180 with Kyrie. It's apple. It's apples and oranges. You got two different 100%. players. K, yeah. KD can be led. He has shown that when you put him in great culture, he's a top ten talent that can bring you a championship. Kyrie, to RJ's point, has won a championship, but in later in his career, he has shown to be a distraction and someone that's not dedicated to the team mission. He let his team ultimately go out there half the games of the season when he could have been out there with them. It's apples and oranges discussion. Somebody tag Gary Harper right now on this post and let him know Steve Trang is willing to hire Gary Harper and Gary Harper doesn't have to show up. <laughs> Look, I, 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 think, I think it's simple, man. I mean, Kyrie is like a point production player. You know, if you got a player like Kyrie, he's going to go average 20, 25 points for you a game, maybe even sometimes more than that. We've all had players like that, but what about the folks who know how to play defense? They're two-way players. What about the people that know how to show up for company culture and support other people on the team and lead by example? I don't see that with Kyrie. He's not playing a lot of games. That's the guy that comes in. He's getting a ton of contracts, but he doesn't care about everybody else's success. He doesn't even care about his own success, really. Not going to show up on my team any day of the week. Yeah, the only okay. thing I was I was going to put in here, uh, the only other thing was that he's also a flat earther, and I can never work around a flat earther. <laughs> that just would not work for me. <laughs> All right. Well, this is one of those. Uh, he's in his own like, universe. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all your points on Kyrie Irving, but that's a separate conversation. So one of those few times, it looks like where we all agree on something. Um, we did have a pretty cool comment from Cassie DeHaas. She said to play on a team, you have to run with the team and work to get better collectively. And I think we would all agree with that. But you got a crazy guy like RJ on that team. Like, how, how does that work? <laughs> all right, let's see. Let's take a look. We're going to take a second, a couple seconds here and look at the votes. Looks like, uh, Man, it looks like the boss man starting with a landslide victory, 53%. Steve Trank taking a W. All right, guys. Question number three. I'm going to bring my notepad out. I want to know what you guys really got to say about this. What is the best way to raise private money? Chris Jefferson, let's start with you. 
Yeah, man. So I'm, I'm a big private capital person. I used to be um, a hard money junkie. All right. Way back in the day. And it's crippling. Right. And so I had to go out and raise a bunch of private money. I had to figure out how to do that. And I found a very kind of clean process. Uh, I started going to self-directed IRA conferences. All right. I just started popping up at self-directed IRA conferences. Why does somebody have money in a self-directed IRA account? Because they want to decide how they invest that money. So I started going to these conferences. Shout out to my folks over at Quest IRA. And I would start going to these conferences and having conversations with people that had capital that they wanted to actively place somewhere, educate them on why I'm an expert and why I fit the bill for what they are looking for, that I can get them a solid, strong return. And you can raise a lot of money that way by going to a place where people are looking to put their money somewhere. Weasel, you want some more? I can give I you a little bit more. Weasel <laughs> I, know, man, I got you in the bag if you need it. I got it. <laughs> Uh, we must have lost his audio. Difficulties. What the, 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 the weasel? You got it? You there? That's that's that's. Can you guys hear me? I can hear you. We, we got you. We got a little technical difficulties. Sorry, he was voting for mind. Steve. He, he got distracted there <laughs> voting for Steve. <laughs> listen, listen, I've tried. It only lasts once got, per he's account. He's got nine votes. <laughs> All right, let's go to Steve Trang. Actually, <laughs> second place winner from last Not round. Uh, so I would say, for me, it's just talking to people, right? letting people know what you do and then just asking them like, do you know anyone that'd be interested in investing in real estate? Right. It's just letting people know what you do. Uh, the key thing here is not necessarily to pitch them. Hey, Leon, would you be interested in lending your money at 10%? It's Hey, Leon, do you know anyone that's particularly interested in investing in real estate gets better returns than, you know, parking at the bank or, uh, in the stock market and having them say, well, 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 well what about me? Can, can I invest in, can I invest in you? Right. So I think just talking to people, letting people know what you do, asking who they know and having them step was like, no, I want to be that guy. All right. Uh, Eric Brewer, your thoughts. So my advice would just come from my own personal experience. I would say you either become an expert or align yourself with an expert. It's kind of what Chris said, right? He couldn't go to these places and suggest that they should lend him money if he didn't earn the right to manage that money effectively. So become an expert. Then once you become or align yourself with an expert, get yourself to a visible place. I was able to do this by just doing a ton of social media. Steve and I did a presentation on this. We talked about it a ton. Then those people will gravitate towards you because they want to do what you do, but lack the ability to be able to do all the dynamic things that come along with finding a deal, fixing a deal, selling a deal, managing an appraisal and all of that. So their entry to real estate investing is lending, not the other 17 things that have to be done in order for us to take a deal from start to finish. So become an expert, lead with value, teach people how to, to do what you do for free, and they'll come and want to invest in your projects. Okay. And let's head on over to Leon Barnes to close us out on this one. Like Eric, I'm going to give you my own personal experience of raising capital. Um, you know, out of the gates, I just told every single person uh, about our program. We actually developed a program. It sounds much better than I'm raising money. I developed a, a private money program for people that want to invest and get returns, high returns compared to what they typically would see in other things. So tell everyone is the first advice that I can get. And then as you tell everyone, you start to filter down to what is the best source for you. Like what CJ gave you is a great example. I spent five years at networking events every 
single week. And there were plenty of times that I did not want to go to those meetings. And on those days that I went is typically when I would meet someone that was interested in what we do. We are in a very sexy industry. People are interested in what we do, fixing and flip. They love HGTV. Just tell people what you do and to give the success stories. Of if you're a fix and flipper and you're raising private money, show those success stories via social media and other channels and people will flock to you to want to invest with you. One of the uh, big lessons I learned uh, as far as private money was to stop saying no when they only have 20, 30,000. You know, I used to do that. And uh, that is money that could go towards a kitchen, a bathroom, you know, whatever mm -hmm. else, like the smaller parts. And that I, that I wish, like one of my regrets in, in raising private capitals, saying no to some of people like, come back when you have 50,000, come back when you have 100,000. 30 turns into 100 really fast if you're if you're delivering on everything that you said you would deliver on because they will find other people to help invest. One other bit of advice I will give is find trades that deal with people's finances, meaning my best resource for finding private money was my CPA. My CPA understood my business, understood his other clients' businesses, and said, you should talk to Leon. He's delivering returns at X. You need to talk to him. And so I had someone introduce me to an individual that said, I'm currently investing with him as well. It edified me at, in my role. Yeah, and people have to understand, we're the, like, what? We're, go ahead, Chris. Go, ahead, Eric. go, go, go. What would you say to the, like, I'm so just I saying, we're, well, like, we're all kind of saying, we've got, we got a lag on it. Go. Some people would say, hey, if the person that invests 30 grand is going to want to know every single day what type of return and what's going on with the house, right? If you watch The Wolf of Wall Street, they say don't pitch or boiler room, right? And they would talk about like if the person that invests 30 grand is going to text you every day. The guy that invests 3 million just wants his check in the mailbox. I would just say I don't know for certain and I think there's some merit, although it'd be very little to what you said about taking 20 or $30,000 because it requires the same, maybe more energy to manage that relationship than it does some, someone that invests $300,000 and might understand a little bit better about the volatility of any investment, whether it be real estate or the market. I'm not saying I know the answer to that, just a challenge right. back to you to, to, to what you said. Yeah, I mean, I think, that's Sorry, a, I think that's a very valid point, right? I think the other thing too, though, right? You got to make sure you set the proper expectations, right? Like, hey, you know, here's how it works. But also, right, like, looking back, like those are, who knows how many referrals I might've missed out on, right? Do, doing a good job for someone at 30,000, they might tell their other friends that have access to more capital, right? So just. Yeah. I feel and, like and everybody that, that has IRA 30 grand hangs out with other people that have 30 grand. Could be. Good points. All right. So can I, can I jump in on that okay, real quick? Ahead, you one last point. Yeah. All right. So look, very simple, right? You go to an IRA conference, let's say there's 500 people in the building. All 500 people other than you, all right, are literally there to figure out how to better manage their money themselves and figure out things they themselves can decide what they want to invest in. They already have financial knowledge. They already understand how interest works. They understand the risk calculation in terms of the investment. And like I think Leon said, they all think, just like all of America, they all think real estate's really sexy. If you walk in that room with a shirt and on the back of that shirt, it says raising money for my real estate business. People are going to come up and have conversations with you. You're going to have opportunities to talk to people about raising capital and you can walk away with a lot of money. That's way cheaper than hard money. I can tell you that. Did you just create a t-shirt? 
No, but I've done exactly what I've said before, and I raised a lot of capital doing it. All right. <laughs> what is the number one skill wholesalers underestimate in needing? Uh, let's go with Steve. Um, I think uh, the the big thing, and we talked about it last week with Eric Brewer, and we had talked about it with Larry Ash, is leadership, right? Leading people like sales and marketing. You can figure out sales as a skill you can learn. You can figure out marketing that's just copying and pasting from your friends, right? So leader, leadership is leading people. People is the X factor in your business. If you can't recruit people, if you can't train people, if you can't lead people and you're having high turnover, you're going to have a really hard time in this business. So I think leadership, leading the people to uh, empower them to do what they want to do, fitting that within your vision, I think that is the single most valuable skill. Uh, and I think uh, wholesalers may not value that initially. I think they figure that out much, much later on in their business. All right. RJ Bates. So I'm going to go with the ability to underwrite a deal. I think this is the number one thing that everyone complains about with wholesalers. And then it's also part of the reason why we're probably getting scrutinized. And there's talks about regulations on the wholesaling industry. When you're talking about underwriting a deal, we have a responsibility to our cash buyers, that essentially our customers, to understand where they need to deal, how to actually analyze it. And so we're making sure when we're making an offer, it's a legitimate offer to a seller that can be performed on. And so I think over and over and over again, we want to talk about how to close a seller, how to talk to a seller, how to do marketing. But what about the nuts and bolts? I get it. It's not sexy. It's not fun to talk about but it's necessary to understand how to properly comp and underwrite a deal. All right, let's go over to Chris Jefferson. Yeah, man, I think this is really simple, actually. I think the number one skill set you got to have is discipline. I think you can be great at all these things that everybody's saying. I think you can be a great entrepreneur. You can be charismatic. You can be whatever you want. But, I mean, if you want to be a wholesaler and you don't have discipline and consistency, you're just not going to get very far. This is a business that beats you up on a daily basis. You got to be willing to get up every single day, do things in your business without knowing if, if it's going to directly return a revenue to you or not. Uh, so I think it's discipline, man. I think you got to be able to get up every day, fight the fight in your business, fight for your dream, whatever that might be. And you got to push forward. So number one skill set by far uh, is discipline. I think that is a skill. Love it. All right. Leon Barnes. So my answer is leadership, but because Steve used it, I can't use that. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go to delegation, and here's why. A lot of people get into this business to be their own business owner, and they have the e-myth that they, they can come and they can do deals. They invest in how to do more deals and continue to scale the business. But what they forget to do is learn how to find other people to do the things that they're weakest at. So I can I see on a daily basis that people really, truly struggle with delegating and try to do too many things. So when thinking about the, the things that they miss the most is how can I find someone to do this for me so I can focus on the highest generating uh, revenue generating activities? OK, the voting and the floor is now open, gentlemen. So, Leon, you got to figure out something going, going on with your camera and CJ, uh, uh, he's he explained uh Discipline, but then he uh, he said discipline, and then he, he defined grit. So I don't know where he was going with that. He he, he gave one answer and then explained a different no, answer. No, so no, I'm not no. really it's, sure. It's, and I forgot real quick. It. Shout out to the you. All right, go ahead, RJ. <laughs> Steve and Leon, they made sure their their answer was under the pretense that the wholesaler wants to scale up a business and actually has a team. 
I mean, at least CJ's answer was applicable. I mean, you have to have consistency. I agree with that. But Steve, what are you talking about with leadership? I mean, you, if you're a solopreneur and you're just trying to be a wholesaler that does two to three deals a week, are you leading yourself? Is that what you're you're referring to? I mean, the, the hardest person to lead is yourself, right? Like we're all great coaches, but are, are we all great students, right? Like first person to lead is ourselves, right? But yeah, to your point, if you're a solo wholesaler, leadership isn't as important, but uh, at that point, you still got to lead other people, right? You got to lead the seller, the title. You still got to lead the title person to do their job correctly. You still got to get the hard money person to fund the deal two or three days prior to close. So you still have to lead people. It's not as paramount as after you have people, but you still have to lead people. Leon's answer was so bad, he just removed himself. <laughs> <laughs> No, he did. But what, the reason I say discipline is because I've had thousands, thousands of students, right? Here's the here's the number one and, and no shot at anybody who's ever been a student. Here's one of the things that I see from a lot of people. You know how many people I've seen, man, that have made 5000 on a deal, 10000 on their first deal, even $30,000 on their first deal, but did not have or maintain the discipline to keep going? How many people have gotten the information of how to do the business and, and gotten some progress? Like making your first call to a seller is progress. Getting a property in a contract, even if it doesn't close, that's progress, right? And so it's discipline to keep going when that contract falls through and it's your first one and you thought you were making 10 grand and you put everything into that. Now it's zero. It takes discipline to get back up and push this thing another day to get these things done. So, Chris, so I really, really think it's discipline. I appreciate you saying that, but that goes back to our last point, right? Which right. was that what RJ and I were talking about, when you get punched in the mouth, mm -hmm. you get kicked in the nuts in this business because it's going to happen. When closing is supposed to happen, it doesn't happen. Will you get back up, right? And I think that's sure. the... The grit, the uh, the ego to withstand challenges, because I think a lot of people, that's what we're saying, like you have to have some in, innate talent, innate uh, abilities. When you get punched in the mouth, will you keep going? Because I think most people are going to be what RJ was saying earlier. They're going to they're be getting up and suing open door. Or they're going to be a Richard. The reason why I went with underwriting a deal is because I think if you can do that, that separates you from the vast majority of wholesalers out there. And I get leadership and discipline and all these things. Those are good skill sets that every entrepreneur needs. This is specifically about the wholesaling industry. And I think that over if you ask the vast majority of cash buyers, hey, what do you wish a skill set all of your wholesalers that you need to bring you deals had? They would say, I really wish they could underwrite a deal like I do. That's not, hey, I really wish they had the discipline to go out. I just, I think that's a, I just had a different idea of what it was because it was specifically about wholesalers specifically. So the number one thing I learned that I underestimated is the power of the you to take out your camera. If you have too good of an answer, that might be <laughs> Chris. That's what I've learned during this. I love it. I love it, man. And shout out to Steve because Steve's really talking about resiliency, right? Like the ability to be resilient, not necessarily grit, but really just being resilient, right? Like being able to take and withstand any sort of pressure, anything that hits you in life, business, whatever, having the resiliency to push forward. So, I mean, I think a lot of great points, but I just wanted to point that out for sure. All right. Someone vote me real quick so I don't tie CJ. Give me a W. <laughs> begging now. All right, we had some great, great comments again. The viewers came through. The viewers came through. <laughs> uh, I want to highlight. Uh, DeAndre said, "All great answers is a good question." Agreed. The evolution. 
evolution said without discipline nothing will improve agree with that isaiah r cena said i agree with rj until coach spoke you can underwrite like a mommy flower but if you're not making offers what's the point uh, <laughs> shout out to my guy isaiah man there we go what is better to buy on market or off market deals and let's go ahead and start with chris jefferson yeah, I'm still going to say off market, just less competition. I think, you know, I got starting a business in 2008. You know, I remember a vivid time, 2009, really mostly 2010 to 2012, where if I wanted to buy five houses literally today, I could call my realtor and she could get me five really good quality on market deals that same day. I don't think we're there yet. I think that's uh, we're potentially may end up there again. Uh, but right now, today, to answer that, I'm going to 110 percent go off market. You're competing against less people. You have more control of the negotiation. There's no middle person in terms of the trusted third party realtor that people are looking forward to an opinion of value. So I'm going to always want to chase off market direct to seller. Again, I think there will be a time potentially in the future where off our on market will again make sense. It did at one point, but I don't think that's today. OK, OK, let's go to Eric Brewer. I think a deal is a deal. Who cares where it comes from? If I can buy an on-market deal, my cost of contract is zero versus an off-market deal where my cost of contract is $5,000. My net on that $20,000 deal is 20, not 15. So I think it's an oxymoron. A deal is a deal. I don't care if I get an on-market or off-market. I will say there might be just as much competition on off-market deals as there is for on-market deals. We just don't necessarily know about it. So with that being said, off market, there's a greater opportunity to buy in volume based on today's market conditions. But like Chris, I was in the market back in 2008, 9 and 10, where you literally could go on the HUD's website and just make offers and buy five to six properties a week. Um, and it was all about just knowing the construction and who your end buyer was. No negotiating. You didn't have to be a great marketer. You literally just had to know how to estimate ARV and construction. All right. Go ahead and take it to Steve Trang for your opinion. Uh, so obviously, you know, we've been preaching off market for the longest time, but we're starting to see uh, the sellers uh, become pretty realistic. So uh, I have the good fortune of working with someone that uh, works with the funds uh, that's still actively buying here. And the comment is the realtor community these days is uh, are, are ones that got licensed during COVID and the negotiation skills are as good as, you know, toilet paper. Um, and so... The, uh, the, they're getting some pretty good pricing right now. And so I'm actually taking a page out of Eric's book uh, from back in the day of lining up with, you know, Audantic and MLS and seeing what options are available. So I actually have a call with Eli Fisher tomorrow morning to kind of figure out how we can systemize this. So I think that we're going to start looking at pursuing on-market deals to see what we can do with that. So right now we're putting efforts towards on-market deals. And I think kind of with Eric, like, there's just as much competition off-market and on-market. Shout right. out all Danik. <laughs> there we go. All right. And Leon Barnes, go ahead with, uh, with your thoughts. The bigger pool, Eric said it, the bigger pool of opportunity um, is off-market, of course. But I can remember eight years ago where things are cyclical in this industry. I can remember half of the inventory that we put under contract and took down were from the MLS and things are cyclical in this business. And the best investors, the best leaders are always going where others aren't. I remember 
when everyone, all, everyone had to go cold call and everyone had to go and text. Well, when people, when people went to texting and cold calling only, the best people shifted and said, I'm going to continue to do direct mail because everyone else has left a lot more of my competition. There are opportunities today on the MLS uh, that did not exist just last year. I haven't purchased in two years inventory on the MLS, but I can tell you now that the amount of call volume that's coming from listed properties has doubled in the last month. All right, gentlemen, the floor is open. I got a question. If you have a, if an off-market seller calls you to get an offer, isn't it on market? The property's for sale. Then you're being semantics here. We're talking about MLS deals. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you didn't say MLS. You said on market. If I'm calling five people to tell them I want to sell my house, so my house is on the for market. For sophisticated investors, on market means on the MLS. Do you yeah, know, I, I don't think I don't think the guy. I don't think Leon CPA who wants to buy an investment property is, is, is licking stamps and envelopes and sending out direct mail to get off market properties. Right. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think they're one in the same, the way you guys are saying they're distinctly different. All right. There's different buyers on MLS that have no idea what wholesaling even is. Right. So it's two different things. I do remember the days to Eric's point, the HUD home store. We used to go crazy buying houses on there every week, auction.com. I think a lot of those things are definitely going to be coming back here in the near future. Those would be for sure considered on market. But, you know, again, for me, man, I think there's less competition, maybe a more sophisticated competition off market. But you can cover a lot of ground off market with good systems, good processes. And unlike Leon, uh, the best of the best are cold calling, texting and sending voicemails. And, you know, maybe every once in a while licking stamps and whatnot, too. But, you know, that's my thought on that. I think you might be a little biased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just a little bit. I didn't say cold calling and texting didn't work. I said they go where others aren't. And a lot more went to that route. And they're doing tons of deals from it. You should be doing all is the right answer, Chris. Yeah, for sure. All of the above. All right. All right. So it looks like the voting is getting ready to close up here. And there's some last second movement. This one's going to be really interesting when it closes out. Well, let's just keep the voting open until Chris is in second. <laughs> <laughs> I like that strategy. All right. It looks like it's actually in a tie right now. So we do have the voting open. Um, it looks uh, all right. Let's go ahead and read a comment really quickly while that closes out. Uh, Walter Lotero said on market property MLS deals that have been on market 60 days plus. Uh, it's a property that could be negotiated. Hundred percent. Here's yep. the thing that I think we're yeah, not I mean, giving I enough think, credit to. What we're not giving enough credit to is if you look, let's say in Phoenix, right? If in a, in a normal month, Steve, how many properties sell? Eight to ten thousand. Out of those eight to ten thousand, how many of those are off market? No, those are all the MLS deals. That's not uh, the, the total okay. sold volume. So, so how how many would you say sell off market compared to the ten thousand on market? Uh, I don't know, maybe like uh, less than a thousand for sure. Hundreds. It's, in it's the a hundreds. fraction. You're, it's, I, I, again, like we're, we're fighting over what we, someone puts their house on the market. We're assuming that they want top dollar. The reality is that's not the case. I bought tons of non-bank owned properties in 2008, nine and 10 from sellers that had limited options from buyers because people didn't have to buy a fixer upper. They didn't want to buy a house that needed paint and carpet because they could go buy a fully renovated house for 50 grand more to only change their payment by 150 bucks a month on market is grossly 
underestimated as far as the opportunity. Um, that's just my point. There's 10,000 properties that sell on market in Phoenix and a thousand that sell off market. You can get 10% of the big pool and it's double getting 20% of the little one. Okay. All right. So the, the voting did end in a tie. So that means that the decision is in my hands and I got to go ahead and give it to Eric Brewer because I owe you one pal from a couple weeks ago when I hit you with the buzzer beater. So buzzer beater. My Brewer man Weasel. And I, I did, I did, I did back channel Weasel. And, and I, I just want to say what I said to him. I said, listen, I see that we're in a tie. I believe Eric Brewer to be the best multitasker that I've ever interacted with. Let me go ahead and just concede the point to him. All right. I think he gave a great thought. So, Eric, congratulations on that round, man. I think you earned it. All right. Thank he you. Just, he just met you great all day. Chris just said he gave it to you. Is basically what he said. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he just conceded, like that the, the, the election when they politely bow out. <laughs> that was his concession speech. Now let's give a little bit of context to this question. We've seen it in sports a few times uh, with players kind of gambling on themselves, getting the guaranteed contract option right now with their current team or betting on themselves, proving it over the course of the next year and then going and cashing out in a free agency situation. So using Juan Soto, for example, right now, he just turned down a $400 million plus dollar contract uh, to not stay with Washington in the long term. So my question to you, gentlemen, if you were in Juan Soto's place as a top talent, are you leaving your current situation or staying? Uh, let's go ahead and start with round one's winner, Steve. Um, I mean, for me, I, I would say that the, the context, right, is whether you should you be the best player on the team, or you're the best paid player on the team. Does it make sense to stay where you're at or move on? For me, what I always look at, I want to be on the best team. I don't have to be the best player on the team. That's not important to me. I want to be on the best team, but... Whoever's leading us better know what they're doing and has enough opportunity for me to grow into it, right? If I can hit all my goals on your team, I can follow. I don't have to be the alpha. So I don't know a lot of people out there where I can follow them. Elon Musk comes to mind, right? Like whatever he's trying to do, getting to the moon, I can fit my vision or going to Mars. I can fit my vision somewhere in going to Mars. But uh, I would, I mean, I quit Intel. To, to go chase my dreams. The they asked me what it was gonna take to keep me back when I was twenty seven, it was like two hundred thousand a year. They're like, we wish you the best of luck. <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, for me, I'd be willing to stay in, in one situation. All right. So Steve going to Mars coming up. Um let's go with CJ. Yeah, so I mean being top talent is always such a tricky place. And I think we have to point out the fact that although he's getting offered what five hundred and thirty million over I think fifteen Half years. A billion dollars. Half a over 15 dollars, years, over 15 years. But the key point here is he doesn't have ownership. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you're top talent and you don't have ownership, the only thing you can leverage is your talent itself. Right. And I think what he's in a position of having to do is say, hey, listen, I'm the best person here. I'm the best person on this team. Can I believe in the Nationals to either build around me? Am I going to see where I can still get paid what I deserve as top talent? And you guys can also build a support system around me. Or is there another organization who can either pay me the same amount and accomplish that, or I can take less money but have a better team environment and a better winning environment? Because I think he understands this, a simple point. It's not a one-person game, right? When you're working in a business, you're top talent in a company. Yeah, if you're making all the money, that's great. But if everybody around you doesn't eat, company culture, things of that nature. So that's where I'm at on that one for sure. Great points. Great points. Uh, Leon Barnes. 
So I would have answered this question differently when I was 23 years old, like Juan Soto. Perspective and age gives, it's, it's huge. 20, you know, 20 years his senior, 22 years his senior, this question is better answered for me this way. Like, I personally believe that happiness is, is, is more important than money. Uh, rich guys, I used to think that was what rich guys like Steve Trang and Eric Brewer and CJ used to say. I mean, I just thought, I thought it was bogus in my 20s. But in Juan's case, if I were advising him, I would want to know, and anyone that is a great talent, what is the commitment to excellence? What is the commitment to winning? To Steve's point, I, if I'm going to be an employee, I want to be led by greatness. I want to be surrounded by other talent as well. So in order for me, I'm chasing happiness. And I also want to continue to you know, maximize my talent and opportunities. And to me, that's more important than that, con that money because the money's going to come. He's talented. All right, and last but certainly not least, Eric Brewer, your opinions. Um, yeah, I would say it's, at the end of the day, I think it's easy for us to all sit back and, and, and make assumptions about how that situation should be treated. It would be really hard for me not to just take the bag. I mean, at, at the end of the day, a half a billion dollars to Chris's point, he can be an owner of something <laughs> next year. Maybe not of a baseball team, he can be a part owner, <laughs> but there's certainly a counterpoint to say, and this is at any pay level, right? Um, once they say technically, once you go above $75,000 a year, it does not have an impact on your happiness, that that money is, is, is effectively wasted. So there are plenty of people out there with a half a billion dollars that are miserable. So I think if that money was in alignment with his overarching purpose and his goals, that's awesome. He should go get both. If not, if you had 400 million versus 500 million, probably doesn't change your lifestyle. One thing I've seen a lot in, in mentoring people over the years is watching them like, you know what, I've, I've had the success. I'm ready to go do this on my own. And, you know, you talk about ownership and so on, which I totally get, right? Because everyone here on this call has done that. Um, I think one of the things that they don't uh, appreciate enough is how challenging some things could be. So that the skills that they're great at on closing or whatever doesn't necessarily translate to owning a sales and a marketing organization. And like you can make some really good money working for Chris, Leon, uh, or maybe Eric, right? Uh, where <laughs> um, with with no risk, right? As a salesperson, with no risk. So you got you got to balance that, you know, in the context of our of our organizations. Like, can I make more money out there with more risk, or do I make really good money with zero risk? And what's worthwhile? You know, going back to Leon' comment about you know uh, pursuing happiness and so on. Yeah, I think I think another thing on that too, real quick is, I think you're always if he if you're in the position of, of of Soto, right? You're struggling with the prospect of, okay, this is this is my value currently, but I I am the top player, I am the top talent, I am the leadership in the side of the the locker room, so to speak. So then, what what sway do I have as a non-owner in conversations? We always talk about LeBron and him being the GM and things of that nature, but there's something to be said for that, right? Like if I'm the top town on the team. I, I want to be in that meeting, giving my opinion, being heard, feeling like I'm being listened to. So I think that has a lot to do with it for him, I'm sure, as well, not just the money itself also. Well, and this doesn't really relate necessarily to employees. And here's why. Most employees that are super talented are not signing a 15-year deal where they are locked in 
and their value doesn't necessarily change. This gentleman, in five years, that half a billion, the value may be a billion, right? Mm-hmm. So or to sign a billion in this space. <laughs> what, what's that? It, with, with, with inflation, it'll be worth 100 million. Yeah, so his value is going to continue to go up. And so this one's a little bit different. Well, and with Leon's 15-year non-compete in, in the clause. <laughs> yes, 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 sir. Yeah, that's, that's Leon's you. non-trade clause right there. 